This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Their Marine Corps designation was VMF-214, but for millions of people around the world, they'll always be remembered by the name they gave themselves, the Black Sheep Squadron. I'm Oliver North, and in this War Stories podcast, you'll hear from those who flew through the Pacific skies to defeat the Japanese Imperial Air Force. They were under the command of Major Gregory Pappy Boyington. The Black Sheep became the most famous fighter squadron in American aviation history. Bob Bob Black Sheep, a television show loosely based on their exploits, portrayed them as rebels and misfits. But once you hear them describe aerial combat, you realize the real story shatters the televised myth and boasts an ending that rivals anything from a Hollywood scriptwriter. In this unforgettable podcast, you'll take off with five of the original black sheep as their F-4U Corsairs roar into battle against the legendary Japanese Zero. In two combat tours, they'd lose 20% of their fellow pilots. But before they were disbanded in March of 1944, the 51 men of the black sheep were credited with an incredible 94 enemy kills. Was Pappy Boyington the two-fisted drinker he was portrayed to be? What really happened to him on his final fateful mission? From blistering dogfights over the South Pacific to barroom brawls on the ground, this is the real story of the Black Sheep Squadron from the men who were there. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology officially matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate through the site within one day. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com strive. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. Good evening, I'm Oliver North. Welcome to War Stories. We're at the National Museum of Naval Aviation in Pensacola, Florida. And this is the Chance Vought F4U Corsair, the fighter flown by VMF 214, the famous Marine squadron known as the Black Sheep. For 84 days between September of 1943 and January 44, the men of the Black Sheep used this aircraft to drive Japanese zeros from the skies over the South Pacific. In 1976, their colorful exploits became a TV series called Baba Black Sheep, starring Robert Conrad as Major Gregory Pappy Boyington. The show brought renewed attention to an already legendary combat unit. But as you're about to discover, the only real things in it were the name of the squadron and the Corsair that they flew. 
The bloody battle for Guadalcanal in late 1942 and early 43 marked the beginning of a new strategy for Allied forces in the Pacific. The Guadalcanal campaign was originally a defensive move to secure Australia. But with the stunning defeat of Japanese forces there, a bold new war plan began to develop. And the key to its success ran right through the Japanese stronghold of Rabaul on the island of New Britain. This is where the first offensive was really getting going for the war. Historian Bruce Gamble is the author of Black Sheep One, a biography of Pappy Boyington. Rabaul stood in the way of everything. Until Rabaul could be neutralized or somehow eradicated, the Pacific was closed. After his famous I Shall Return speech in 1942, Southwest Pacific Area Commander Douglas MacArthur was determined to take the war to Tokyo via the Philippines. Naval strategists argued for a drive through the Central Pacific. In May of 1943, the Joint Chiefs decided on a compromise. MacArthur's forces would advance through New Guinea. The Navy under Admiral Chester Nimitz was to begin a westward push with Admiral William Bull Halsey in charge of an island-hopping campaign through the Solomons. You could say that the Solomon Islands was the first step on the road to Tokyo. Halsey likened the Solomons to a ladder, with each island being another rung closer to Tokyo. He vowed to change the name of the ladder's top rung, Rabal, to Rubble. But the island fortress was heavily defended by nearly 100,000 Japanese troops and some 600 aircraft spread over five airfields. Destroying it wouldn't be easy. For the first six months of the war, the Mitsubishi A6M Risen, or Zero Fighter, ruled the skies over the Pacific. We could climb like an angel and was very nimble at most speeds. The lower speed, the better. So it could basically turn on a dime. The Zero was battle-tested over China more than a year before the first one appeared at Pearl Harbor. It proved to be a lethal fighter. The place you got killed were when they were climbing out. When you got up over their base before they had climbed out and organized their squadrons into tactical formation. 22-year-old First Lieutenant Jack Bolt saw his first zero over the Russell Islands in September of 43 and quickly learned that dogfighting one-on-one in close quarters rarely ended well. Most of the time, you got in behind one, they would see you getting into that shooting position, and they would break away, and we didn't follow them. We never did. Uh, It was fatal to do so. Japanese pilots favored a defensive technique called the Lufbury Circle. Sometimes there'd be a whole mess of planes just making a big, gigantic circle. So each person protected the other person's rear. Author Henry Sakaita is a third-generation Japanese-American and a leading authority on Japanese fighter pilots. And if a plane tried to come in and attack you, then he'd be attacked from the, from the, the guy behind. But the very thing that made the Zero so lethal soon proved to be its downfall. At the beginning, the pilots were asked if they wanted armor protection, and they all of them said no. They didn't want any extra weight. In fact, a lot of them, to uh, minimize weight, they would actually get rid of the radio equipment and uh, all sorts of unnecessary things uh, in the cockpit. Typical Japanese pilot uh, wore a parachute uh, harness and carried a a small pistol uh, tucked under their uh, flight harness. It was called a suicide weapon. And uh, for the Japanese pilots uh, to be captured uh, brought great uh, disgrace and family dishonor. So uh, they would uh, 
shoot themselves to avoid uh, getting captured. Until early 1943, the only Allied aircraft to successfully oppose the Zero one-on-one was the Lockheed P-38 Lightning. That was about to change. The F-4U has plenty of guts in her engine and plenty of sting in her guns. In February 43, the first F-4U Corsairs began arriving in the Solomons. This flying hot rod, nicknamed Hognose for its massive front cowling, was powered by a 2,000-horsepower supercharged radial engine. It had an engine that was almost twice the horsepower of the Zero. Originally developed for Navy carrier duty by the Chance Vought Aircraft Company in Bridgeport, Connecticut, oil coolers in the Corsair's distinctive gull-shaped wings made a whistling sound in a dive, earning it the nickname Whistling Death. When you look back on it, what was the best airplane you ever flew? Oh, yeah, no question about it. And I've flown almost everything the Navy's had. 25-year-old First Lieutenant Henry Hank McCartney from Long Island, New York, and 22-year-old First Lieutenant Henry Boo Bourgeois from New Orleans first flew the Corsair in Guadalcanal. The Corsair was the airplane that that, uh, really I could uh, feel as a part of me. With 650 caliber machine guns in the wings, the Corsair was also better armed. It could just fly rings around the Wildcat, and we knew it would do the same thing around the Zero. Admiral Halsey knew it too, and when a landing gear problem caused the plane to fail its carrier qualification, the Marines inherited it. Now Halsey had the right weapon to battle the Zero's defending Rabaul, but he also needed pilots and a commanding officer to lead them to victory. Bull Halsey would soon find his commander in a hard-charging Marine major named Gregory Boyington. He'd already flown in combat with the Flying Tigers, and now he was back in the Solomons itching for a good fight. When we return, he gets more than he bargained for, and in the process, a Marine legend is born. By the summer of 1943, long-range bombers from New Guinea had been sporadically pounding the heavily fortified Japanese stronghold of Rabaul for more than a year. But the lumbering aircraft lacked fighter support. Bull Halsey was getting ready to start the campaign for Bougainville. He needed more Corsair squadrons. There were few available because of the original eight Corsair squadrons. Four had completed their obligation and were headed home. The idea was generated somewhere in the chain of command to take replacement pilots from the pool of guys who were just waiting for assignment and to take the Corsairs that were available in fairly good quantity. Many of these replacement pilots were seasoned veterans. I came into the squadron then with four kills to my credit. VMF 214 was the number assigned to the new outfit. It originally belonged to another squadron known as the Swashbucklers. They lost their CO in a flight accident. Two or three other popular guys were shot down and lost. So morale has really sunk to a low level. And to make matters worse, the swashbucklers were on leave and wouldn't be available for combat duty for weeks. Admiral Halsey had a war to fight, and it couldn't wait. And we just lifted their number. When they came off of R&R, they were not very happy. Now Bull Halsey had his squadron, but who would lead it? In the summer of 1943, a scrappy 30-year-old Marine combat pilot named Gregory Boyington arrived in the New Hebrides and landed on the island of Espiritu Santo. Greg Boyington was campaigning for a squadron that he could put together using 
the available Corsairs and pilots from the replacement pool. Boyington was already a skilled fighter pilot who'd logged his first flight at just seven years of age. He and a buddy actually stood in the front cockpit of a Jenny and had no helmets on, no harnesses of any kind, and they went flying with a barnstormer. Young Greg decided to become a pilot on the spot. Born in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, on 4 December 1912, Boynton received his early flight training as a Marine cadet. But in August of 1941, he resigned his commission to join General Claire Chenault's American Volunteer Group in China. They were looking for 100 fighter pilots to go defend the Burma Road against the Japanese. The pay was good, and the Flying Tigers, as they were called, also got a $500 bonus for each confirmed kill. With a growing family to support, Boynton needed the money. He really wanted to get out of debt and redeem himself. In his 1958 autobiography, Ba Ba Black Sheep, Boyington claimed to have shot down six aircraft for the Tigers. But the record proves otherwise. He only had two aerial victories that were documented and paid for. He felt that he should have been paid for four planes that he destroyed on the ground. In fact, during his brief stint with the Flying Tigers, Boyington had more fights with his fellow pilots than he ever did with the Japanese. Major General John Allison, then a lieutenant in the AVG, remembers him well. He was a liability. He lost airplanes. He got lost, landed wheels up, and, uh, and finally, well, you know what Pappy's problem was. He drank too much. Chanel sent him back to the United States. He ended up getting a commission as a Marine major in the reserves and was sent overseas in January of 1943. Aboard that same ship, young Henry Boo Bourgeois. He brought aboard a, a case of scotch he was taking out to his general's friend, a friend he had out there. And I'd say by the end of the, the, the first week, it was all gone. After the squadron is formed, and you guys are part of that, that first combat tour with the squadron, did it become known that, that he'd had a problem with booze even back in, in China? Yes, yeah. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. It, uh, it was pretty obvious. He, he was always into the bottle. Boyington had been a wrestler in college at the University of Washington. And when he drank, that old fighting spirit would return with a vengeance. Yeah, he wanted to wrestle anybody. He'd take them on. He was uh, belligerent, but belligerent in a sort of a fun way. But just before arriving on Espirito Santo, he proved he wasn't all that good at choosing opponents. And he just picked on the wrong boy at the old club one night, and the old guy just picked him up and heaved him up. He got thrown right out of the door and uh, broke his ankle. Lucky for Boynton, the decision on who should command the newly reconstituted VMF-214 fell to the assistant commanding general of the 1st Marine Air Wing, Brigadier General James Nuts Moore. In spite of his spotty record, Boynton got the job. Boynton arrives back from the hospital. They give him the number, and he picks out all the replacement pilots. First Lieutenant Tom Emmerich from Wichita, Kansas, and Ed Harper from Wallace, Idaho, were picked for that first group of 28 pilots assigned to VMF-214. When did you guys first meet each other? We were roommates in flight school. We went out on the same ship, and we ended up in the same squadron. And now that squadron needed a new name. We were not going to travel as swashbucklers. And somebody said, well, we ought to be called Bowington's Bastards. 
And uh, the press people came around and said, you won't get the kind of publicity you want. Somehow or other, it evolved around that uh, we would uh, be called uh, the Black Sheep Unit. And Boyington got a new name, too. Where did Pappy Boyington get the nickname Pappy? He was older than, seven years old, older than anybody. They were calling him Pappy and Grandpa and, uh, I don't know, all kinds of, you know, derogatory names and finally just settled down to Pappy. In the next three months, under Pappy Boyington's aggressive leadership, the Black Sheep claimed 94 enemy aircraft shot down. He preached, when you see a Japanese, kill it. He said, pick out one and kill it. He says, that's our mission. Next, the Black Sheep draw first blood, and a deadly race for top ace gets going in the South Pacific. Your orders remain at your post. More stories will be right back. This commodities report was brought to you by United States Commodity Index Fund. Though it became the nemesis of the Japanese Zero, the F-4U Corsair wasn't without its problems. And Pappy and the men of the Black Sheep Squadron had barely a month to learn how to fly it. Esprit de Santo is the first time you see the F-4U. I saw one once on an air station before I went overseas, but I only saw one one time before I got to the South Pacific. What did you think when you saw that gull wing shape out there? Great. Uh, anxious to try it. And with few actual planes available for training, you literally learn to fly the Corsair by the book. They give you the handbook, then you come back and they put you in the cockpit and blindfold you and say, point out the throttle, point out the landing gear. And then they say, okay, you're checked out, hop in and away you go. What pilots lacked in seat time, they made up for on the ground with colorful strategy sessions led by their new skipper. He uh, was a very aggressive guy, imaginative, loved to fight, wanted to get in a fight. Uh, He had all uh, paint taken off his airplane once so it was silver and it was more easy to see. And it was because he said, if I can't find them, maybe they can find me. The Black Sheep's first mission came on September 14, 1943. Flying escort for 12 B-24s and a bombing run to Kahili, a typical assignment at the beginning of their first tour. Usually you flew two missions a day. Most of them were boring as, you know, patrols and searches and, and things like that. It's very difficult to get a kill when you're escorting the, the bombers because you're, you're locked into this position right behind them. But on their third mission, another so-called milk run, all hell broke loose. The bombers were to go after the shipping in the harbor. And they were probably around nine to 10,000 feet. And we had 16 Corsairs close covering. We got up there and the, the whole harbor was covered with the, the thunderstorm. And suddenly here's about 60 zeros take off with probably 30 or so of us from various squadrons. And airplanes are all around. It quickly broke into a, a fight, air to air. And when he started fighting with the airplanes, they pretty soon they're all over the sky. You look off the left, there's an airplane going down in flames, airplanes crossing 20 feet in front of you. I got somebody shooting at me, I'd go into a cloud 
come out and shoot at a Japanese airplane, get shot at again into a cloud and come out and try and stick with the bombers if you could. There's so much traffic, uh, people screaming and yelling and the radio is popping and off frequency and so forth, that I just disregarded radio reception. I was really scared and I thought, what am I doing here and how did I get here? The pitched battle covered some 200 miles. 30 agonizing minutes later, it was over. 16 of the 24 black sheep had seen action for the first time. They claimed 11 victories in all, with Boynton getting credit for five himself. And that was their first actual engagement with the Japanese in the Solomon Islands. The job of verifying these combat claims fell to VMF 214's intelligence officer, 34-year-old First Lieutenant Frank Walton, Jr. Walton stood six feet four, and so, in addition to documenting the unit's missions, he also rode herd on Boyington during his frequent drunken wrestling matches. The only one he wouldn't wrestle was Frank Walton, was Frank Walton who was an Olympic swimmer, uh, come off the Los Angeles police force, a big man, and nobody fooled with Frank Walton. Walton kept careful notes of the pilot's after-action reports in this war diary. A pilot would give him the information that he had witnessed during the fight. They didn't have any special rules on when you're going to come back and say, I have a kill. The intelligence officer took your word for it. Oftentimes, what he didn't see was that two or three other pilots, maybe on his left and on his right or from above or below, were actually shooting at the same airplane. Matching Japanese claims against actual Allied losses shows that the other side exaggerated their kills, too, usually by some 300%. The top Navy ace of the war was uh, uh, Chief Petty Officer Tetsuzo Iwamoto. Uh, At the end of the war, he claimed 202 victories, 142 at Rabaul, and out of the 142, he claimed shooting down 48 Corsairs, which is kind of an incredible figure. One thing about that day is for certain, forged by the fire of first combat, the black sheep had become a hardened fighting unit, but it came at a steep cost. The squadron's first officer, 23-year-old Captain Robert Ewing of Lafayette, Indiana, was missing in action. That evening, the unit received new orders. They were to move up the slot to Munda. At first light, Captain Ewing's plane was never found. Coming up, the squadron flies into an angry Japanese hornet's nest over a ball. In just six weeks, they lose eight black sheep, one of them, the skipper himself. Like the rest of the Allied bases springing up in the Pacific, Munda on the island of New Georgia had recently been seized from the Japanese. Munda has a reputation for being a malarial hellhole. What was it like? Miserable. Terrible. Ooh, did you get malaria out there? No, I got hepatitis. One or the other, right? Yeah, and uh, it, it was nice because it was the first time I really saw those nurses <laughs> with giving alcohol back rubs and all that stuff. But, but, but not at Munda. Not at Munda. <laughs> at Munda, the only females the Marines saw were the insects and lizards they fought for food. You sweated all the time, you were wet, and there was no place to dry off or keep cool. 
The welcoming committee that first night arrived at 0100 in the form of a bombing raid by the Japanese. They would send uh, bombers over at night to drop bombs on the Americans so they couldn't get any sleep. Three times that evening alone. By 0400, the exhausted squadron was out on the flight line for another day's run. Ed Harper had earned himself the nickname The Mole for his ability to dig himself into the side of his foxhole. He'd soon earn another, less humorous one. His nickname was The Sleeve. The, the Sleeve was a target that the aerial planes uh, pulled. Boynton gave me that title after I got shot up. Actually, the first time. It was October 17th. The black sheep were on another of their runs over the Japanese air base at Kahili. I was tailing Charlie and I got off by myself. I found a zero down below me and started making runs on him. Every time I got close to him, he'd do a split S underneath me. But what I didn't realize all the way down, he must have been hollering because I suddenly became aware that I had a lot of extra company. And instead of being on the offense, I suddenly was on the the defense trying to stay alive. And after playing that game for a while, you dive out the bottom of the cloud and go home. Not a big deal, except I had over 100 holes in my airplane when I got there. And so I started the, uh, the reputation of being a slave. Eager to get his unit some stateside recognition for these daring exploits, Frank Walton invited a newspaper reporter from the Chicago Daily News to interview Pappy Boyington and some of the pilots. Frank Walton had a, a, uh, a talent for uh, sending out news presses to every squadron member's hometown. And why not? In their first month of combat, the black sheep were credited with 57 kills and 19 probables. And as their fame grew, so did the pressure on Pappy to get more victories. And the press would be all around and jump up in the cockpit and so forth. You saw the mechanic when you pulled in and shut the engine down, but the press got up there ahead of the mechanics. By the end of the first tour, spurred on by his competitive nature, Boyington tried a new tactic. Now, instead of waiting for Japanese aircraft to attack, he began flying over their bases, taunting them by radio. The first known episode was on October the 17th during a flight to Kahili, the southern end of Bougainville. And Boynton got overhead, saw no aircraft, and actually challenged the Japanese to come on up and fight. It wasn't long before the enemy began talking and fighting back. They would just uh, call up and, in broken English and say, uh, Major Boynton, what is your position? Did he ever answer them when they say, where are you? Yeah, he'd say, well, come on, I'm, I'm right over here. I'm right over you. Come on up. You go up to their airfield, you circle around, the little bastards come up, and you start fighting. You're out looking for a fight, and you'd normally get it. And as the black sheep moved ever closer to the Japanese stronghold of Rabaul, those fights would increasingly take place over enemy airspace. It's never a good thing to do your fighting over the bad guy's airfield, because if you're hit or shot down, uh, there's really a, a poor chance of your ever getting back. In the Japanese military, the code was kill or be killed. No mercy. If an American pilot bailed out, it was quite common for Japanese pilots to come in and try to shoot the guy in the parachute. Despite the increasing risk, Boyington continued to lead the black sheep on fighter sweeps over Bougainville. Then, in mid-October, a dispatch arrived from Admiral Halsey. It read, quote, Your steeplechase over. You are retired to stud. The Black Sheep's first combat tour had ended, 
the squadron packed up for Sydney, Australia, and some well-deserved R&R. So October 43, first trip to Australia. What's it like? Australia? Well, the, uh, the Australian girls were really nice to welcome us the way they did. They love Marines. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> While the black sheep were enjoying themselves in Sydney, Admiral Halsey was busy on Bougainville, landing Marines in Empress Augusta Bay. Boeing had a 19 new black sheep to train, but with Bougainville partially secured, Pappy wanted to find a harder target. He suggested Rabal. He was the one who really had the idea of taking Corsairs and Hellcats and going up and hitting the Japanese as they were taking off. And once again, it was his old friend, Nuts Moore, who gave him the go-ahead. On December 17, 1943, Boeington led the first single-engine fighter sweep over a ball. They had five airfields there, and they could bring up and put 60 airplanes in the air very easily. When you were about maybe 30 miles away from the field, you'd start seeing the dust come up and knew that they were taking off. Though the Japanese forces at Rabaul had been steadily worn down by Allied attacks, the black sheep still faced more than 200 Zero pilots who knew how to fight the Marine Corsairs. Takeo Tanamizu was an experienced pilot at Rabaul. He would try to come in from behind and slightly above, and he would shoot into the cockpit like this and kill the pilot. Um, he said if you try to shoot them from uh, straight back, the, the bullets would bounce off and there would be no effect. The Japanese really scored against the Black Sheep on that second tour. They had six pilots shot down on just two consecutive uh, flights. But the Black Sheep were scoring two, and with 24 kills to his credit, Boyington was now just two away from the all-time record, jointly held by Joe Foss and Eddie Rickenbacker. He was getting a lot of pressure to break a record, and uh, uh, he was pretty uptight. And where was that pressure coming from? From himself or from the press? Or a lot of press meeting him after every flight, asking what, he ha what happened and how did it go. On December 23rd, 1943, after knocking down four zeros in a single day, press microphones were waiting for Boyington as he taxied to a stop at Vela La Vela. Major, did any Japanese planes come up to fight you today? Yes, there are number of uh, Japanese planes that came up and heckled a strike that we had over there, and uh, we entangled uh, all the uh, Jap zeros we could in dogfights, and I saw eight other planes destroyed besides the four that I destroyed myself. The next night at a Christmas Eve party, he made a startling prediction. And he said, don't worry about me. They can't kill me. He said, if you ever see me with 30 zeros on my tail... I'll be all right. I'll meet you six months after the war in a bar in San Diego, and we'll all have a drink for old times' sake. Ten days later, Major Gregory Boynton would be shot down in a running gun battle off Rabaul. But he didn't go quietly. Before he disappeared, he was seen burning another enemy zero, his 26th. On his last mission, he tied the record for aerial victories. But what about that promise to meet his fellow pilots in a bar after the war? Just another drunken boast? The amazing truth when war stories continues. On 
On January 3rd, 1944, Pappy Boyington disappeared while leading a fighter sweep over a ball. Were you guys, either one of you, flying with him on January 3rd when he got shot down? No. When they didn't come home, uh, we asked to go on a search party, and they wouldn't let us. The following morning, they let four of us take off and go out and look for him. If we got back in time for our regular mission, but he wasn't found. They had no idea of where to look for him. Boyington's disappearance created a press frenzy. Rumors were running rampant. The New York Times even reported that Boyington was alive on an island, hidden by natives and waiting to rejoin the squadron. All of the stories proved to be untrue. What was the effect on the squadron when he got shot down? Well, we, we had been shot up pretty uh, badly by that point, so that... We were, we were getting a bit ragged on morale. The reaction was that if somebody like Boynton could be shot down, it affected how the rest of them felt about their own mortality. It was really at the end of the combat tour anyway. Only three days later, their tour was done. The Black Sheep Squadron was officially disbanded in March of 44. Its fearless leader was still missing in action. They were together for just four months for two combat tours from September the 12th, 1943 to January the 6th of 1944. They did accomplish a lot during a short period of time. We had no idea we were going to set records. We were going to do pretty good, we thought, and we were having reasonable success, but we didn't expect the attention that we received along the way. The tight-knit unit soon scattered. With their tours over, some went back to the States. For others like Bolt and Harper, there was still lots of fighting to be done in the South Pacific. I was shot on my last mission, on the last day before the squadron returned to the States. And it was over a ball. A bullet came in the side of the canopy. So he yelled, I'm hit, and we pulled off the target and and started taking him back. We couldn't see... uh, the round that it hit him. It went through my lungs, hit my spine, paralyzed my legs, and, and, and screwed me up pretty thoroughly. His back muscle was shot away. You can put your fist in the hole in his back today. <laughs> he was grounded for three or four years. Ed Harper recovered from his severe injuries and went on to a distinguished military career, retiring as a colonel in 1969. He later worked for McDonnell Aircraft in St. Louis, but he never forgot what Pappy Boyington taught him during those 12 weeks in the South Pacific. He made young fighter pilots brave. He made me feel aggressive. Uh, He gave me confidence. He was an honest-to-God leader. John Bolt would go on to achieve the extraordinary feat of becoming an ace in both World War II and Korea. In April of 44, President Franklin Roosevelt awarded Pappy Boyington the Congressional Medal of Honor in absentia. Boyington's story quickly faded from the headlines. Then, late in the summer of 45, Happy was once again front-page news. That's next on War Stories. August 1945, two atomic bombs on Japan finally bring an end to the war in the Pacific. But for thousands of half-starved and tortured Allied prisoners, the long road to recovery was just beginning. The Japanese uh, were very, very severe with the captured enemy airmen. They would frequently get beaten during interrogation. Uh, They were medically neglected. 
Among the gaunt and drawn faces of the newly released captives, one healthy example stood out, Gregory Pappy Boyington. No one knew that he hadn't been killed until the end of the war. It was like the prodigal son. He was thought to be lost and dead. Released from a Japanese prison camp near Tokyo Bay on August 29, 1945, Boyington had not only survived, he'd managed to thrive during his 19 months in captivity. It probably made him more of a hero to be found alive in this POW camp. Promoted to lieutenant colonel after his release, Boyington made his way across the Pacific to a triumphant return in San Francisco on 12 September 1945. The press came out in droves and the black sheep were all there to hoist him up on their shoulders and carry him triumphantly into the terminal. Welcomed home after liberation from Jap captivity, pilot he commanded, Hale Marine Air Ace Colonel Gregory Pappy Boyington. Uh, I was shot down between Ribal and New Ireland you know, over the St. George Channel. I was about 200 feet over the water in my main gas tank blew up in flames in my face. The evidence shows that he actually ditched, that there wasn't a big fire in his fuel tank. A fiery crash is always a lot more dramatic than just plain ditching. And he was picked up by the uh, Japanese submarine 181, and uh, he was brought into Rabaul, and uh, he was uh, interrogated by a, a Japanese-American uh, from Hawaii named uh, Edward Honda. And uh, the guy spoke perfect English, knew all the American lingo. Didn't realize that a man could be hit with a baseball bat so many times, being swung with all man's might. But it wasn't Honda that did it. Eddie Honda wanted out of Rabaul, and Pappy and a few other prisoners were going to be his ticket home. What uh, Eddie Honda did was he told his superiors, uh, Major Boynton and some of these guys... Uh, have a very important and valuable military information, and they have to be sent to Tokyo for further interrogation. Had Major Boynton not gotten out of a ball, he would have been executed. During the long trek to Tokyo, Eddie Honda saved Boynton's life again. While being strafed by U.S. planes at a stopover on Truck Island, Honda let his captives run for cover. He pushed them out of the Betty bomber as they were being strafed, and uh, threw these guys into a slit trench. During his imprisonment, Boynton managed to make the most of his situation. They gave him a job working in the kitchen at Afuna, and he actually gained weight. I think he's got to be the only Allied prisoner to ever gain weight at a, at a camp like Afuna because he was able to steal food and so forth. A month after Boynton's triumphant return, President Harry Truman officially presented his Medal of Honor. Despite the lack of evidence substantiating his claims of shooting down two Japanese planes on his final mission, the Marine Corps declared him their all-time leading ace and put him on a national war bond tour. It was bad for him personally because he just couldn't cope with that sort of adulation. Greg Boynton told me they expected me to be the swaggering you know, hero that they've read about. So if that's what they wanted to see, then he said, I acted the part as Pappy Boynton, the swashbuckling hero. Everywhere he went, somebody was sticking a bourbon and Coke or whatever in his face and, and encouraging him to go back to his own ways. And he did. Within two years, Boynton's bad habits ended the one-time hero's illustrious military career. He again became just too big of a liability 
because of his drinking problem. And they ha found a way to more or less railroad him out of the service. He was retired with a medical disability uh, in 1947. And after that, he couldn't hold a job for more than a few weeks or months at a time. Despite penning his popular autobiography, Bob Bob Black Sheep, in 1958, Pappy was on a seemingly endless downward spiral. For years, he just bounced from one job to another. He was on uh, wife number two at this point in time, who was trying her hardest to help him stay sober. He worked as a wrestling referee. He worked for a brewery, of all things. Greg was this incredible hero that sort of had a screw loose. There was no quit in him at all, zero. Life in obscurity ended for Boynton in 1976 when Hollywood producer Stephen J. Cannell launched the television program Bob Bob Black Sheep, loosely based on the squadron's exploits in the Pacific. But we were really in the vein of fiction. It was not anything like what was really going down in the South Pacific. All of the characters that uh, in, the, in the show were characters that I created. To lend it some realism, Pappy Boynton was hired as a consultant for the show. It ran for two years. Was there anything accurate about it? Yes, there were three things accurate about that show. The squadron designation was 214. The commanding officer was Greg Boynton, and the airplane was a Corsair. We never saw nurses. I didn't run around in starch khaki, did you? <laughs> nope. Squadron member Henry Bourgeois stayed in the Marines until he retired as a lieutenant colonel in 1961. For 18 years, he sold navigational systems to the military, then started a third career as a gentleman farmer. But I'm proud of the time I put in the Corps. I'm still in the Marines. Alan McCartney retired as a Marine colonel in 1966. Tom Emmerich would go on to a 30-year career as a pilot for TWA. And Pappy Boyington's Black Sheep Squadron would take its rightful place in Marine aviation history. Was there something unique about this guy that made this squadron special? He was the right guy at the right time. We were at the right place at the right time, and we all felt that we were very lucky to be in a squadron by Boynton. On 11 January 1988, at the age of 75, Pappy Boynton died of cancer in a hospice in Fresno, California. He credited his fourth wife, Josephine, with helping him win his longest battle, the one with the bottle. For the last few years of his life, Pappy Boynton was finally sober. We'll be right back. During their 12 weeks together as a Marine fighter squadron, 11 black sheep were killed in action. The VMF 214 still racked up an extraordinary record. Nine of them became aces. One received the Navy Cross and their skipper the Medal of Honor. But perhaps their greatest achievement was the effect they had on a war-weary nation. Hungry for good news, the black sheep provided a steady stream of it. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night.